stories to you. Okay, so now to introduce our special guest, Julia Gillard, and event host, Rosemary Milsom. Rosemary is the founding director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. She last interviewed former Prime Minister Julia Gillard in 2014 in Newcastle City Hall, and perhaps some of you were there for that, lucky enough to be there for that. That conversation focused on her autobiography, My Story. Tonight, Rosemary will speak to Julia about her new book, Women and Leadership, Real Lives, Real Lessons, which was co-authored by Ongozi Okonjo-Iwela. Our special guest tonight needs little introduction. Julia Gillard was the 27th Prime Minister of Australia. She currently serves as the chair of Beyond Blue, one of Australia's leading mental health awareness bodies. She's chair of the Global Funding Body for Education in Developing Countries, the Global Partnership for Education, and she's the inaugural chair of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. Through this institute, they conduct research, practice, and advocacy to address women's underrepresentation in leadership. Julia is also an honorary professor at the University of Adelaide and a distinguished fellow with the Centre for Universal Education, one of the world's leading policy centres focused on universal quality education in the developing world. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Rosemary and Julia to the stage. Thank you. It's all for you, Julia. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for being here. Welcome. It is so fantastic to be back in a live event. Uh, I've been excited about this for a couple of weeks, hoping and praying that uh, COVID wouldn't somehow intervene. And we're really grateful that Julie has made this trip. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we're gathered here tonight, the Awabakal and Waramai people. Pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. And I also welcome Aboriginal people who are in the audience tonight. And welcome to all of you. If this is your first Writers' Festival event, well, you've picked a good one. <laughs> We're in for a really great conversation. I said to Julia before we came on, I actually had to remove half my post-it notes <laughs> because I thought it would be really embarrassing and everyone think I was a real nerd. But that is, every, every time I came across something that resonated, I stick a post-it note in it because I cannot write in a book. Uh, it's just <laughs> anathema to me. And uh, so I did remove half of them because I thought it looked really, really, I don't know, geeky, but uh, it's, it's a fantastic book. We're going to talk about women and leadership and it's co-authored by Ngozi Okonjo-Awila. And I just wanted to mention Ngozi because she's a pivotal part of this book and obviously the friendship she has with Julia. And she's poised any minute to become the first woman and first African to lead the World Trade Organization. And the decision will be ratified on Monday? Monday. <laughs> Monday. Ngozi's had a 25-year career at the World Bank, and she's a former Minister of Finance in the Nigerian government. And she's also a dedicated philanthropist and advocate for women's rights, particularly the economic independence. And I, I had to sort of laugh. I was doing a little bit of research about Ngozi, and European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde, who's also interviewed in this book, uh, was asked about how she felt about Ngozi uh, becoming the new WTO lead. And uh, she had this to say. This wonderful, soft, very gentle woman with an authentic approach to problems, but boy, under that soft glove, there is a hard hand and a strong will behind it. 
she's going to rock the place. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I wondered, Julie, if you agree with that assessment of your friend. I absolutely do agree with that assessment. Can I just start by saying it's fantastic to be here and be able to join you tonight. As you can imagine, having a book come out in the era of COVID has not lent itself to many live events. So it's fantastic to be back, able to talk to people about the book and no better place to do it than right here. So thank you very much. Uh, Ngozi is a fantastic character. We got to know each other. Uh, I first met her in 2012. She came as a Finance Minister of Nigeria to the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, which I chaired in Perth. But we really got to know each other going to international meetings where I was there in my capacity as Chair of the Global Partnership for Education. And she at that stage was chairing the Global Vaccine Alliance. And its mission is to make sure that people in poorer countries can get access to vaccines. So there are a few more organisations on the planet uh, more important than Gavi right now. And we were just drawn to each other. And I was drawn to her because she is, you know, funny, loud, witty, warm, but behind that is this fierce intellect. And she is not afraid in a meeting to uh, put a point, to put it strongly. Uh, in the various interviews we've done for the book, one of the things she said to young women who have asked, you know, what's your tips for navigating a, an environment where maybe you're the only woman or one of only a few women, uh, and Ngozi always answers, you speak first. Because there's always that moment in a meeting where someone says, well, you know, here's the outline now, over to you. And Ngozi says, there's always a silence, you fill it. And if you're the one who fills it, you'll shape the rest of the debate. And I think that summarises her <laughs> attitude to life. <laughs> Women in Leadership uh, interrogates the biases and barriers that women in power face and the impact this has on leadership. And uh, it, it includes interviews with incredibly impressive women. And I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know of a couple of them, including Ngozi. So I, I, you know, it's been an education for me as well. But you and Ngozi speak to Jacinda Ardern, former British PM Theresa May, Hillary Clinton, former president of Malawi, Joyce Banda, former president of Chile and current United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet. And we gain insight into leadership and how it looks for women in Nigeria, how it looks for women in Malawi, uh, for Chile, Norway and New Zealand, uh, and also you know, in Hillary's experience in America. All these women are true trailblazers. They're the first of their first prime ministers of their countries. They're the first leaders of organisations, and of course yourself, the first Australian uh, female prime minister. There is so much to explore tonight, and uh, the book focuses on issues that I think most women here tonight will have grappled with. Why am I being judged more harshly by my appearance? Why do I struggle with self-doubt when considering a leadership role? If I show emotion, why am I seen as weak? Why am I regarded as a bitch if I'm assertive? <laughs> and bitch is used in the book. Um, why am I doing double the amount of work as my male colleague, yet he's getting the pay rise? Why the heck is equality still so far off? <laughs> and for men in the audience, you know, I was thinking about this, because we do have a few, in including the deputy chair of the festival board. Um, you know, you have wives, girlfriends, daughters, sisters, mothers, colleagues, female colleagues, and I think that there's much to reflect on in, in the, the topics, that, the terrain that we'll cover tonight. And so I hope that you'll also gain uh, some really important insight. You mentioned that this was published last year during COVID. And I, I just wanted to start 
before we chat about the book to ask you, what has the past year been like for you? I mean, you travel a lot. Uh, have you been grounded? Did you binge Tiger King? Did you read, <laughs> did you read War and Peace? So how, what has the last 12 months looked like for you? Uh, I normally uh, would be overseas about half the year and then back here about half the year. And what takes me overseas is I've routinely been spending three months of the year in London chairing the Global Institute for Women's Leadership and then work with the Global Partnership for Education and speaking engagements has tended to keep me in various places around the world for the other uh, three months, so half-half. Uh, I was in London in March when the world seemed to go from, oh, there's this thing, yeah, you know, it's okay to heavens. Uh, and a good friend of mine uh, whose partner is connected with the airline industry uh, rang me up and said, I don't normally speak to you in these tones, but I'm telling you, get on a plane now. Do you understand me? I'm like, okay. Uh, so I came back to uh, Adelaide, to my home in March, and I've been there ever since, uh, apart from uh, when the book launched, I uh, went uh, to Sydney to do uh, Q&A and some of the big media events. Uh, I'd been back to Sydney on one other occasion last year, and in December I was in Melbourne, and in January I was in Melbourne. So uh, this is my fifth trip uh, since COVID grounded me. So compared with how I've normally travelled, that's extraordinary. Uh, it's had its upsides and its downsides. I mean, its upsides have been uh, lots of time with family. I live in a beautiful part of the world. I live very near the beach, you know, all of that. Uh, and obviously, Australia has been a very safe place to be during this pandemic. Uh, but the downside has been I've tried to keep all my international work up and do it virtually. And that's meant, you know, I'm more likely in many ways to be busy at 10.30 at night than I am at 10.30 in the morning. So I'm sort of regularly clocking on for the night shift. I am a big reader, so I've spent a lot of the time reading. Uh, I initially, during the pandemic, um, couldn't concentrate on anything too difficult. So I was doing a lot of page turners. Uh, but then I decided, uh, because the Global Institute for Women's Leadership is in the Virginia Woolf building and we've used that for the podcast I run, we call it a podcast of one's own after her great, great statement about a, a woman needing a room of her own to write in. Um, so I said to myself, I've read some Virginia Woolf in the past, but I'm going to read her collected works from start to finish. I'm now, I'm now about, no, please don't go, ooh, because wait till you hear this bit. <laughs> uh, I'm reading it on a Kindle, and I reckon I'm about four books and two or three collections of short stories in, and the Kindle unhelpfully says something like, 17% read, 67 hours to go. <laughs> so uh, I'm not sure that I am going to acquit my pandemic uh, resolution about reading all of Virginia Woolf. I have binged some TV, not Tiger King, um, but uh, definitely, you know, The Crown and uh, just uh, Bridgerton. And I was going to ask like you that. about Bridgerton. <laughs> I don't think there's a woman in, a, in the world that hasn't watched Bridgerton. I don't know what that says about us at the moment, but anyway. <laughs> well, I think it says that we're uh, hankering for something that's um, uh, beautifully shot, you know. It, it, it's, 
it's like a, we don't get out much, do we? And so then you, you see this thing that's like a moving artwork because they've obviously thought so deeply mm. about every costume and every set and every scene. Um, I mean, to, to be frank, plot-wise, I'm not sure it was, you know, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure it was at the forefront, uh, but uh, it was, uh, yeah, good watching. Entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> women and Leadership explores eight hypotheses about women and leadership. We're, we're not going to have time to go through all eight um, by the book, um, but it... What I, what I appreciate about it is it sets about examining you know, research as well as personal experience to test these hypotheses and, and flesh them out a little bit. I just wanted to start, as I said, I'm not going to go through all of them, but at the beginning with girlhood, uh, what did you discover about how much influence a girl's younger years has on shaping their, their future leadership? Yeah, I think we found something quite interesting on that. One of the things that Ngozi and I... Uh, talked a lot when, about when we were uh, designing the book before we actually sat down to do the writing was uh, given we were interviewing women from such different cultures and contexts. I mean, Ellen Johnson Sirley from Liberia, the first woman to ever lead a nation in Africa. Her life story is one of uh, poverty, of uh, early marriage, uh, of a, a marriage that included domestic abuse. Uh, a nation wracked with civil war. She was a dissenter against the regime. She had to run into exile on more than one occasion. She was imprisoned on more than one occasion. And uh, one of her terms of imprisonment, she ultimately didn't serve all of it, but it was the kind of term of imprisonment in the sort of jail where the expectation was that she would not survive it, that a human being could not survive being incarcerated in that place for that many years. So you say to yourself, you know, how much experience can she really have in common with uh, me or uh, Jacinda Ardern or the Prime Minister of Norway, Erna Solberg, uh, Norway being one of the most wealthy and gender equal countries in the world. And yet we found that a theme for all eight women leaders was that in their family home growing up, they weren't told no that leadership is for boys. So none of them were told, you must be a leader. And you know none of them was told, unless you turn up as president of this or prime minister of that or whatever, that somehow you will have failed the family's expectations. It wasn't like that. Uh, but they grew up in an opportunity positive environment where their uh, parents were saying to them, you should aim high, you should do your best, you know, any doors open to you. And they weren't role modelling that some things in life were only for men. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you and Ngozi uh, developed the go girl hypotheses. And I, you know, what really comes through is that what a girl is told as she grows matters. It does. And one of the things that we explore in the book is I think many parents today try to uh, role model in their own home um, equal gender relationships. I think a lot of parents go to a lot of trouble to do that. Uh, but one of the things we explore in the book is, of course, it's not just what happens in the family home that shapes expectations. And, you know, I... Uh, yeah, being in Adelaide, I've been spending a lot of time with my uh, great-nephew and great-niece, uh, Ethan and Isla, 
Uh, Ethan turned seven, Isla's two years younger. Uh, they had a birthday party at one of those play centres and um, because of COVID, they could only have so many kids and so many adults, so I actually didn't go to the, the party. But when they came back, I was talking to Isla and saying, you know, what was it like? Did you have fun? And she said, oh, um, you know, I couldn't, couldn't play some of the games because they were only for boys. I thought, that's really weird. Um, and then I talked to my Isla's mother and my niece, Jenna, who explained, no, some of the games were, you know, there was a height regulation and being that two years younger, she was a little bit too short to, to go on the games. But you think, you know, no one, not her mother, not her father would have said to her, that's only for boys, but somehow she'd picked it up. Mm. And we record in the book, um, I remember being in an airport and I was eavesdropping, so I don't, it's probably a bit rude, but, um, uh, you know, a, a woman was having an argument with her sort of seven, eight-year-old daughter, which, which she was losing uh, because the... That's not surprising. <laughs> yeah, you know, the daughter was with the, you know, confidence that only a six or seven-year-old can have, was saying, no pinks for girls. And this exasperated mother was like, but, but daddy's got a pink shirt, no pinks for girls. And you just knew there's, you know, no way she picked that up in her family home, but it's still there. And so I, I, we in the book say, this isn't just about what you do at home, but it's also when kids bring things back from the outside world, how you talk about them at home to try and make sure that the world isn't shaping their expectations into gendered roles, even whilst you're trying to combat that. I, I was watching an interview with Christine Lagarde because I'm fascinated by her. Uh, with Forbes, and, and, and she talked about childhood, and, and she said, you spend your life with your childhood. Yes, I think, I think that's true. And she, uh, she lost her father. Uh, he had one of those uh, long-term uh, debilitating illnesses, so he was you know, very unwell for a period of years and then died when she was a teenager. Uh, and she was the oldest child and she saw her mother need to become the sole leader of the family. And I think that uh, made a big impression on her in every way, of course, losing a parent in childhood would. Uh, but I think that uh, what she saw her mother need to do uh, made an impression on her about women and leadership. Uh, and interestingly, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, you know, Christine Lagarde grew up in France, Ellen in Liberia. Uh, her father uh, was uh, a, a politician uh, and much feted by people in the Liberian community. He was an important man, uh, but he died when she was young. And she speaks about the family going from having this status to being impoverished. Uh, and her watching her mother uh, lead the family in those very difficult circumstances. So uh, we do try and uh, tease out in the book, you know, what implications it has when you have these childhood events. One thread that I picked up was um, probably because it's uh, biased on my part, the oldest child. That, that notion of responsibility and that the, the eight women talk about having taken on responsibility. You know, they joined Girl Scouts or they took on positions, uh, positions of responsibility at school. And that's, that's, that's what stood out to me. The one, there are a common thread, more than that uh, among them, but that was a really strong thread among all eight, no matter where they grew up. They were, at a young age, encouraged to take on responsibility and, and stepped into it. 
Yes, that, that's true. And, and actually, uh, Girl Guides um, uh, was a common experience yes. for uh, Hillary Clinton and for Erna Solberg. Uh, both of them had leadership roles uh, in that, and both of them put themselves forward for leadership roles in schools. Uh, and there's uh, a story that Hillary Clinton tells about uh, running to be president of her high school, president of the student body, and she wasn't elected and a boy was, uh, who said to her, having been elected, oh, you, you can't seriously have thought you were going to end up being president given you're a girl, like that was never going to happen. And you're like, oh, you know, <laughs> given everything that's played out since. Uh, yeah, but she sort of yeah, obviously kept at it. Um, and it was important to her to go from that environment to a women's university, to Wesley College, and she sort of found her voice mm. there. Can we jump ahead from girlhood to the workplace? Because that's, you know, there, there can be study in between and, um, and all sorts, university, TAFE, etc. But it's the next big, big stage, I think, for, for women is the workplace and the dynamics of the workplace. And uh, this is where it seems more often than not that women's leadership potential either becomes neglected, overlooked, stymied, um, and compromised as, as well. And, what, what did you find are the key structural barriers that kind of feed that? Yeah, we took in the book uh, what we refer to as a glass labyrinth approach. Um, so uh, people would be familiar with the glass ceiling and whilst we were talking to some of the leading women in the world, we didn't want to just talk to them about, you know, what was the journey like from being right up here to the final bit when you ended up being uh, a political leader or president or prime minister. Uh, we wanted to trace their journeys uh, all the way through. And so the glass labyrinth is a sort of theory that says you need to look at every uh, part of a woman's uh, work and life journey and look at every moment when she was treated differently, potentially lesser, uh, simply because she was a woman. And uh, what we found and what the research certainly shows uh, is, you know, seemingly... Uh, when uh, men and women first start in the workplace, you know, often as um, young, uh, young recruits, they might be uh, graduate recruits, they might have gone straight from school, uh, people would say, look, it's pretty equalised at that point. Uh, and yet in Australia, we know that even at the graduate intake entry level, there is already a gender pay gap. So this is when, you know, kids coming out of a, a university like Newcastle University get their first job. Already there's a gender pay gap, which is probably explained by the fact that uh, young men do negotiate for them, themselves, whereas young women just take the advertised salary. Uh, and then as you move through the forma family formation stage in particular for women who have children, um, you get to a whole set of barriers about work and family life, the uh, perception that people are on the mummy track, that they're you know, more interested in their families, less interested in training opportunities, promotion opportunities. Uh, and then you get further up and there tend to be fewer and fewer women around, more male environments. And the research would tell us that at that stage, a lot of women basically give up. They say to themselves, look, I could spend my life's time battling through this environment, but, you know, I just don't want to do it. And so when you track particularly in uh, business, you will see the biggest drop-off as you're moving from the mid-rung to the upper-rung. Uh, and it often 
maybe family formation or it may be this, you know, there are fewer women, less role models, less mentors, uh, a more masculine environment. And so we track that uh, with the women leaders we talk to and, and try and find where they saw the key barriers. And it's different for uh, each of them and you can see the power in organisations deciding that they will make a difference. You know, so Erna Solberg, Norway, very gender equal society, but she got into parliament really young uh, because, you know, her political party basically decided that she had promise and they weren't going to make her wait, they were going to get her into the parliament and then they were going to curate effectively a set of uh, experiences for her leading committees and doing important work so that she would develop her skills. So, you know, that kind of approach obviously makes a big, big difference compared with women just trying to battle to get in from the outside. It's interesting too because there are critical points in these women leaders' lives and work lives where men step in and actually assist them. I mean, I know that sounds really shocking, um, but you know, Jacinda Ardern talks about uh, when she was working in London and they were trying to lure her back to join, you know, to get involved in politics at home. And I think it was Darren Robertson, um, in the, Grant. Grant Robertson in, in her party said, well, you have to put her forward yeah. before me. I, I, and as she says, uh, you know, if that didn't happen, I wouldn't be in politics. Yeah. I think that's a really important dimension. And uh, when Ngozi and I do virtual book events together, uh, she's always the one who says, we've got to talk about men. We've got to talk about men. So whatever the interviewer is asking, Ngozi at some point will say, we've got to talk about men. Uh, and uh, we did want to write this book for women and men. And in this world in which we live, uh, when we you know, look around the world and can say disproportionately uh, political leaders are still men, corporate leaders are still men, uh, judges are still men, uh, news media organisations are still run by men. Uh, the commentary you see in the media is more likely to be from a male voice than a female voice and on and on it goes. Uh, the movies you watch, you know, the, the directors, Nobel Prize winners, all the rest of it, Booker Prize winners, uh, disproportionately men. Uh, in, in this world, unless men are part of the change, it is going to take so much longer to get there. And, and it is incredibly powerful if a man does decide that he will use the influence he has to promote women and women's leadership. And in uh, Jacinda's case, I mean, this would be rarely done in politics, but she ran on uh, what they call a list. It's sort of the equivalent of being on a Senate ticket here um, in Australia. And, you know, like our Senate ticket, there's only so many spots that are winnable and then you get into the unwinnable spots. Um, she, uh, they were going through that process and they were offering uh, the winnable spot to this colleague of hers, uh, to Grant, who said, no, I don't want to take a spot until she's got a spot. Um, and that's what first got her into New Zealand politics. So the power of that, the self-sacrifice of that, um, I think is amazing. He's ultimately ended up in politics himself and he's a minister in her government. Uh, but, you know, 
I don't think we need to be saying to men, you know, you have to always go to that extent, but the very simple things that men can do in workplaces, in schools, in academic institutions, uh, in community groups, to make sure that women are included and women are promoted, I don't think that they're that hard or too much to ask. In the introduction, um, and you mentioned, you know, it's going to take forever to get equality if we don't have men advocating and, and, and doing what they can. In, in the introduction to the book, you, 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 know, you talk about the urgency of this book and I suppose the information it conveys, the message it conveys. Why the urgency? I mean, I, I know why. It's a kind of almost a rhetorical question. <laughs> but but what's, what's this urgency? Where's that coming from for you? Uh, where it's coming from for me is I can't believe, really. Um, I mean, I know it in my head, but I can't believe it in my heart. I can't believe, given how long we've been at this task of creating a more gender equal world, that we are so far from the finishing line. Uh, you know, I uh, would have first, I mean, it, it, intuitively as a child, and it was certainly modelled in my family home, uh, I believed boys and girls were equal. You know, when I went to university, I first got exposure to, you know, sort of feminist thought. I didn't study gender studies or anything like that. No one, no one was teaching gender studies when I went to university. It's a long time ago. Um, but, you know, there was an active feminist movement on campus and I came to understand more about the uh, feminist movement and the dimensions of inequality. But if you'd asked me then when I was 20 or 21, you know, what do you think about this? I would, I would have said it was wrong. When do you think it's going to be fixed? I would have said, oh, well, you know, by the time I'm, you know, 35, 40, whatever, this will all be, you know, like everybody's onto it now, it'll be fixed. Um, and, you know, I'm a little bit older than 35, 40, um, and we're nowhere near fixed. Uh, the World Economic Forum tells us that uh, for political equality, it'll be basically a 100-year wait. For economic equality, it will be a 200-year wait. And it's just ridiculously, woefully, shamefully far too long. Uh, so it's that that gives me the sense of urgency. And I also think that there can be a bit of a sense of complacency too. You know, people... People look um, at the world and they see, and you've seen this during COVID, you know, people saying women lead better. Um, and then they'll do the memes and stuff of the number of women leading nations around the world. And I think people would look at that and say, oh, well, that's good, there seems to be a few women. But, you know, when you actually stop and think about it, you know, of the almost 200 nations in the United Nations, 70% have never been led by a woman. And of course, gender equality isn't having one woman, it's having a woman half the time. Um, you know, so you look at the United States, you imagine the next 20 years in US politics, gender equality would be, you know, having a woman elected and she serves, say, eight years as president and then there's an election and someone else is elected and that's also a woman. She serves eight years, 16 years of women. Maybe then the next person would be a man, you know, and then the next one would be a man. That would be gender equality. You know, I mean, how far, even though we've got Vice President Harris, how far away do we feel from that, from the US every, you know, second turn, uh, electing a woman to lead the nation? Uh, how far away are we from that here in Australia? Uh, that's gender equality and, you know, we've got a lot to do to get there. Can I ask you about uh, 
your your feminism because you, you write in the book. Um, I'm just trying to find my notes. Um, you you write about. I wonder whether on my journey in politics I was an active and analytical feminist, but not a sensitive one. I mean, you're a doer. You, you got <laughs> things done. Is is that all? You know, the structural limitations of Australian politics can really allow as a woman that you're you've got to be a doer. You you can't be a sensitive feminist. You can't be a you know, very vocal feminist, you can't be a, an empathetic feminist. I mean, does it only really enable you to be the sort of feminist you were while you're in politics? I think it um, is enabling more, and I certainly hope that, you know, for, uh, for Sharon Clayton, for your local member, for the women who are in federal parliament now, it's a bit different than it was. Um, I, and I, I, had to think about this uh, a lot um, as as we generated the book, uh, and you know, we I, I'm of that generation of Labor women that we, uh, you know, in the mid 1990s we had a political party where if you looked at who was representing it, say in federal parliament, you know, about 14 one four percent of Labor parliamentarians were women. On the other side of politics, it was about 13%. So basically, you know, dreadful and dreadful. Um, and we, we set out on a mission to change that with the affirmative action rule, with Emily's list. And so we, we did these very big structural things to make sure more women got in. And that has made a difference. Now, if you look at Labor teams uh, around the country, state and federal, it's round about half-half. Uh, so that's good. And then we were of that generation where often uh, women were, you know, doing things for the first time. You know, I was the first Deputy Prime Minister, first Prime Minister. Nicola Roxon was the first female Attorney General, and so it goes. And when when you're in what has been such a historically male structure and you're the first, I think the task you've got to acquit is showing that a woman can work in that structure and succeed. And I set out to do that. I set out to show that in the adversarial environment of Australian politics, particularly question time, that a woman could uh, could lead it, could dominate it, could um, you know, bend it to her will, and you know whether it's you know, whether the public likes it or not, and I suspect the public doesn't like it. Uh, but for many years, uh, who's up, who's down in federal politics has been defined by the sort of gladiatorial contest that is question time every day, and you couldn't be considered for a senior leadership position uh, unless you could show that you could survive and hopefully thrive in, in that environment, and I set out to do that. But then as the, the generations beyond that come, I hope they've got more space to say, we know women can win at this game, uh, but we're now going to ask a series of profound questions about whether this has to be the game. And I look at Jacinda Ardern, and she's very conscious about this. She's been able to uh, foreground empathy and kindness as her style of leadership, because the question, can a woman lead, has already been asked and answered in New Zealand. She is the third woman to lead the nation. 
Um, there was Jenny Shipley, and then there was Helen Clark for a long period of time. So New Zealand knows a woman can do this. Now, now you've got the space to say, of course a woman can do this, and there are different ways of doing it, and I'm going to do it like this, with kindness and empathy. But I don't think in those nations where women are still coming through as the first that it's, you've necessarily got that latitude. Um, and of course we're talking intensively about politics and that's because the women we interview in this book are from the world of politics. But we didn't want this to be a book about politics. We chose women from politics because we thought the spotlight was whitest and hottest there and so the issues would be in the starkest relief. But, but the same set of issues, I think, is there for women in the business community, uh, women in all walks of life. Uh, you know, I think the same would be, you know, the first female CEO, the first chair of a board, the first female judge. Um, they, they probably uh, have to acquit that first question of can a woman do this before you can start the broader discussion. When it comes to your time as PM, um, or your time in politics, we'll stop, but I suppose particularly PM, uh, you write in the book that you assumed the maximum reaction to your gender when you became our first female prime minister would happen early. So there'd be a whole reaction, oh, first female prime minister, and then it would normalise to business as usual. But it didn't. And I mean, in fact, it snowballed. And I wonder, you know, if the benefit of hindsight what would you have done differently? Would you, would you, I mean, you're right, you would have called out the, the gendered sort of barbs and the, 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 particularly with the media, sooner. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of the endlessly fascinating things about human existence uh, is you, you never get to run the control test, you know. Um, <laughs> you never get to go back in time and say, uh, and let's now try it this way and see what the difference is. So uh, the statistician in me, uh, the frustrated scientist in me is always left wanting because you can never, or you very rarely get anything that acquits that sort of randomised control trial. Um, I, I do... I muse, I don't know, but I muse, um, if, if I'd decided, instead of thinking, as I wrongly did, that the sort of gendered component would take itself out of the system because everybody would carry on and then everybody would get over it, um, if, if I'd foreseen that, no, if you don't call it out early, it'll just get worse, you know, what would have happened if, um, you know, the... I was sworn in as Prime Minister, so I call that day one. Uh, day two, I went to a shopping centre doing a sort of meet and greet with voters, and literally all of the coverage, um, TV, radio, newspapers, all of it, was about a trench coat I was wearing, all of it. Um, and, you know, we, we in my office grimly joked it was the trench coat that divided a nation. Um, uh, it, it was referred to in uh, The Australian, so something that you uh, uh, would say that it's a newspaper of record. Uh, its lead political piece uh, was uh, comparing the coat to a cheap hotel uh, motel bedspread, uh, to which I uh, joked when I next saw that journalist and just how much time have you spent in cheap motels? Um, uh, ne never getting a satisfactory answer. Um, but I, I do... You know, if I'd said at the press conference the next day, look, you know, I'm 
come out at this press conference today to talk about health or education or the economy or whatever it was, uh, but I just want to take one moment to talk to you about yesterday's coverage. Um, you know, yes, I'm the first female Prime Minister, yes, I'm going to wear clothes, um, but, you know, <laughs> is, is, this, is this how we're going to go on, that instead of uh, reporting you know, things that I'm saying and doing which are of significance to the nation. You're going to, you know, report constantly what I'm wearing that day. You know, would it have got us in a better cycle? I don't know. Um, you know, you kind of hope that people might have thought about it, but given the sort of um, uh, stubbornness uh, that there can be in the media, they might have just doubled down on it. You know, you, you don't quite know. Certainly something I wish I had done, um, and it you know, because I became Prime Minister all in a rush, I, it's something I would have had to have done as Prime Minister. But I wish I had um, deliberately reached out to some leading Australian men um, and, and said to them, you know, look, I'm not asking you to get involved in the political fray, but if it gets really gendered and silly, I am asking you to say something about that. So, you know, I have um, mused, what about if in the worst of the carbon pricing carry-on, some Australian business leaders, men, had said, look, you know, whatever you think of Julia Gillard's carbon price, I don't support it, you know, I don't think it's a good policy, but whatever you think of that, we don't conduct our politics like this, you know, so let's get this gendered bit out of it and all go back to talking about whether or not the carbon price is a good thing because that's what the debate is. Um, I think that would have been quite powerful. And one of the things we talk about in the book is uh, women thinking about that in their own contexts. Where are those allies that can come in and help? And also, if you're confronted with appalling behaviour, gendered behaviour, how will you react? I mean, that's towards the end of the book when you have your sort of lessons. That's one of them. You know, think about this. Think about what would happen. I mean, it, I, in my experience, when it does happen, you're so taken aback because you can't believe it's happening that it's done and it's afterwards in the aftermath like you, re, you know, going over how you maybe should have acted, you think, why didn't I say this? Why didn't I do that? So in a sense, if you're prepared or you expect that it possibly will happen and, and have an idea of how you'll react, because usually it just, it's so shocking at the time uh, and it, it, you stumble and, and it's only afterwards you think, wow, I yeah. could have handled that so much better. Yeah, and, and in many ways that, uh, that was part of the energy that propelled the writing of the book, that we are in the happy situation now that women who are thinking about their own uh, careers and experiences and what might happen to them next, particularly if they're aspiring to be a leader in whatever context, uh, that, you know, they're in the position, I sort of joke, they're in the position where they've seen this movie before. There aren't too many plot surprises now. Uh, <laughs> we, we know uh, that women leaders get treated differently in a whole series of ways. Greater focus on appearance, greater focus on family structures, uh, stereotyping around too strong, too soft. Uh, all of these things happen to women. So given we know that they do, you can get ready, you know, as to how you'll react or who you will turn to to help you react because a, a, a mistake I think we can easily make is, you know, we do talk in the book and I obviously talk about calling out sexism uh, early, but we shouldn't 
therefore conclude that it is always the woman who it has happened to who needs to bear the burden of calling it out. You know, actually, that burden should be on all of our shoulders so that if we see something happening uh, that's gendered, sexist, then we should all be um, onto it. And one of the things that really struck me about the 2020 uh, presidential campaign in the US, apart from the sheer delight that President Biden won, um, uh, uh, was that, you know, after Hillary's experiences in 2016, uh, there, there was real-time engagement around the gender questions. So, you know, the first criticism that President Trump uttered of uh, Kamala Harris when she was selected was, she's nasty, no one likes her, mm. which is, you know, a sexist trope from central casting. Um, and, and people were immediately into the media, on social media, saying, that's sexist, that's why he's saying it. And I don't think that would have happened in 2016. Yeah. So, you know, and I think it's a good model that you don't then say, well, she's got to come out the door and say, President Trump's only calling me nasty because he's trying to, you know, play with gender stereotypes. Other people are doing it for her. I couldn't help but reflect, uh, you know, with the impact of Me Too, if you'd become PM post Me Too, how differently that may have played out for you. Yeah, I, I mean... Always, always hard to know. I, I certainly think, uh, you know, it's a whole, whole cocktail of things. Um, uh, I think my experiences, me too. Um, I think there is much more understanding now about gender and politics. So, you know, when I was there as Prime Minister, the sort of political commentariat, their analysis was... Um, you know, basically nothing about uh, my prime ministership was explained by gender. You know, it was just not relevant. They just weren't seeing it. They weren't seeing the gendered bits. Whereas now, I mean, I think, you know, many reporters are very onto this, talking about it, thinking about it. Uh, and so the environment has shifted in a positive way. And if we're having that conversation, often sounds like a humble thing to say, well, we're having the right conversation. But, you know, human beings ultimately resolve things by talking about them. So if they're out in the open and we're talking about them, then we are at least on the track towards fixing them. We're going to go to questions from the audience shortly. Um, I'll just quickly let you know what will happen. So there'll be a couple of microphones on stands in these middle aisles. And uh, we'd ask you to maintain social distancing if you line up for a question and, and not to touch the microphone stand. If you do need it adjusted, there'll be a volunteer on hand to help you with that. And we'll also be disinfecting the microphone between each question. So uh, you can you know, rest assured that will be taken care of. So have a think about a question if you've got one. I'll, I'll be chatting to Julie for another few minutes and then we'll go to question time. I will also remind you too that uh, Julie has to rush back to Sydney straight after the event and, and won't be able to sign books, but she's been in the dressing room out the back since she got here from Sydney Airport at 4.30 signing books. <laughs> so you can buy a signed copy afterwards in, in the foyer if you want one. But uh, yes, we're lucky to have the time we have with her, but it, it is very brief. So that's all the more reason that we'll uh, aim to get her back again uh, with a bit more time. Can, can just uh, one observation I've made about women when they get into positions of power, and I've watched it happen with friends of mine, is that there's a sense that 
they can't be who they really are. They're either, if they're too assertive, they're judged. If they're not assertive enough, they're weak. And I, I've watched them, and they've talked about it, um, kind of begin to change who they are or, or compromise who they are, and, and that impacts their leadership style. And I know that it, it, it does come at a cost, I think, in the end, to them. And I, and I wondered what your thoughts are about that, that because it is so gendered and the workplace and the way we look at women and these stereotypes we have about leadership and a male leader is, is this and that and, and practical and makes decisions and a woman's going to be emotional and flustered and, you know, we carry these kind of stereotypes. They're very ingrained, even mm. if we think we don't. I, I wonder what you think about that, about having to sort of change who you truly are and you, you can't as a leader as a woman leader be who you know who you want to be because yeah. of these kind of pressures and it, it look I, it's tough I I don't think um, and and certainly the leaders uh, we talk to you know they they wouldn't say that you know they've somehow changed their style or that they're being anything other than their authentic selves but you know we all swim uh, in, in the slipstream of our culture and we're all moulded by it. And in, you know, research has shown incredibly clearly that all of us, women and men, have sexist stereotypes whispering in the back of our brains. And so to just give you, you know, a couple of snapshot examples of that that we talk about in the book, um, in... Uh, the US, there's a website called Rate My Professor, where college students get on and put ratings of professors. These are college kids, so they're not, you know, they're not 90 years old, they're young people, so you would say to yourself, well, they're less likely to hold sexist stereotypes than perhaps someone who was, you know, uh, young decades and decades and decades ago when gendered um, norms were far stronger. But these college kids, there was a... a uh, interactive study of 14 million entries on this site that found that male academics were disproportionately likely to be labelled as a star or a genius and women academics were disproportionately likely to be labelled disorganised, bossy or ugly. You know, these are, these are college kids. Uh, and then at Yale University, they got two... Um, groups of voters, so, you know, a randomised controlled trial standard groups of voters, had them in separate rooms, halls like this, uh, had a man talk to one room and a woman talk to the other room, and they were pitching for votes. But they both uh, were actors and they had been given the, exactly the same script. Uh, and so both of them said things like, I'm the kind of person who gets things done. I might stand on other people's toes to do that, but I always deliver the job. And coming from the man, that was fine. And when they did the little dummy ballots at the end, people, oh, he seems like a go-getter. I'm going to mark my ballot for him. From the woman, people found that in completely objectionable and didn't vote for her. And it is this stereotype in the back of our brain that says, you know, we expect, you know, we've been conditioned to expect that men can be ambitious for self, leading, commanding, even potentially a bit of a bastard. But, you know, like hard bastards gets things done, don't they? So, you know, that's, we, we accept that. But from a woman, if she isn't showing a form of uh, empathy and nurturing, then we, you know, she's 
basically offending against the stereotypes we have in our head about women, that they're not supposed to be ambitious for self, they're supposed to be ambitious for others, put their needs first, uh, they're supposed to be caring, they're supposed to be kind, they're supposed to look to the interests of the team and the family before their own. Uh, if a woman comes across as too strong because she's offending against that stereotype, we'll mark her down. We'll say to ourselves, she's not very likeable, she's a bit of a bitch, uh, and we you know, won't give her, if we're asked, would you support her for something, we won't do that. And so each of our women leaders intuitively knew this. They didn't, you know, they didn't have to get their heads in the global research base, they intuitively knew this, and they knew that if they came across as too tough, they'd get marked down, and if they came across as too soft, too kind, then people would say, well, she seems very nice, but she doesn't have enough backbone to lead. Um, and each of them was therefore quite conscious they were on this tightrope between strength and empathy, and, and it did limit their behaviours. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it, that's, a, that's a real burden to live with, this sort of self-editing. And the example of that in the book that really broke my heart well, we spoke to Michelle Bachelet, who was the first uh, woman to lead Chile in uh, South America. Uh, her, her father was a general. Uh, when the uh, Pinochet uh, regime took over the country, her father was uh, imprisoned, he was tortured and he died. Uh, she too was briefly imprisoned and tortured. Uh, she, was, she fled, she managed to go into exile, and the first country she came into exile to was Australia. Uh, and then she went to other places and ultimately went back and democracy came back and she became president. But before she was president, she was Minister for Defence, first woman to serve in that role. And so people have said to her constantly, you know, what did you feel in that moment, becoming Minister for Defence? You know, her father, a general, tortured, died. His daughter becomes Minister for Defence in a newly democratic nation. You know, what did you feel in that moment? And she says, truthfully, what I was saying to myself is, don't talk in too soft a voice. Don't talk in too soft a voice. I can't talk in too soft a voice. And you just think, you know, kind of robbed her of what should have just been this moment for her, for her family and for the nation that you could say to yourself as a citizen in that nation, you know, we used to be a dictatorship that killed people and now we're the kind of country that has a woman become Minister for Defence and these things are joined together, father, daughter. You know, you should have had that proud moment. Uh, and, you know, this is the cost of the self-limiting behaviour but it, it would be irrational to say to women, you know, just don't worry about any of that anymore because it's still there. What we've got to say is let's get rid of it, all of that stereotyping, and then women won't have to have the self-limiting behaviour. So if women are self-limiting, the problem in my view is not with her, the problem is with us and the environment that we're creating. The book concludes with 10 standout lessons, and I'm not going through them all, we, we have to let Julia go, but um, I just want to finish by drawing attention to lesson two, which is at the end of the book. Um, there is no right way to be a woman leader. Your style of leadership is precisely that, uniquely your own. 
Thank you, Julia, for showing us your style of leadership. And uh, as a nation, we've benefited and we continue to do so. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Stories to you.